Hello again, everyone, and welcome to episode 40 of Now We're Talking. My name is Rob Danish. I'm a professor of communication studies at the University of Waterloo. And today I'm joined by two of my students, Megan and Nagin. And uh, we're going to talk, I think, about background assumptions, about the kinds of assumptions people make in communication processes. So welcome, guys. How are you both doing? Great. How are you? Good, good. So what do you want to talk about today? So today, as you mentioned, we're going to be talking about audience and background assumptions. Uh, so when it comes to communication, there is a challenge that comes with creating shared meanings with your audience and who you're talking to. And that is because there's a difference in assumptions and expectations. So in other words, it's important to recognize that creating shared meanings begins with explicitly explaining or defining the words and phrases you use and how that might differ, differ from others um, before you can agree to a shared meaning. And these assumptions come from cultural biases. These are things like personal experiences and your social location, which includes your gender, your class, your race, how your parents raised you, um, so on and so forth. So often people come <clears throat> into discussions assuming everyone has the same understanding of a word or a phrase, um, but that's not always necessarily true. And then we have a little bit of a conflict. So, um, as an example, in class today, Rob was talking about the difference between uh, what family can mean for people. There's different structures of family. Um, so for yourself, Rob, uh, you mentioned that family to you is you and your two sons. Um, whereas for me, it would be my parents, uh, my brother, and then I would include my grandparents. It's like a European Portuguese thing. I would include probably most of my uh, extended relatives in that. Um, and another example <laughs> kind of happened last night. Um, <clears throat> Nagin and I here, we were supposed to meet up, <laughs> which didn't happen. Uh, we kind of said that our time was going to be 10-ish, okay? 10-ish was really bad. Um, basically, Nagin kind of thought towards 10.15. I was thinking more towards 10.30. Um, we didn't define the ish. Yeah, we didn't define the ish. Uh, we did not have a shared meaning. Therefore, Nagin ended up driving all the way home instead of spending the night at my house, which you know caused a little bit of conflict, but I'm, I'm glad to say we made it we made out it alive. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, that example reminds me of, uh, so I was just in Japan, and if you take a train in Japan, and and uh, the train says it departs at 3.09. It departs exactly at 3.09 to the oh. second. And if, oh it's not, if it's off within 10 seconds, you actually can get a refund. Or, what? what? Uh, yeah, they're so precise. Just like but the TTC. If you, if you take a train in Italy and the train <laughs> suggests it's leaving at 3 p.m., you have no idea what time it would leave. But it's highly unlikely that the train would leave at 3 p.m. Mm -hmm. Because the schedules, we, the, both cultures make different assumptions about what constitutes precision in terms of time or what, what the meaning of 3 o'clock even is. And so I, I think what you're pointing out is, is really essential to us understanding a lot of the source of communicative conflict. So, so often we can get in a conflict with someone else just because the underlying assumption they have about uh, something that is, is that seems apparent on the surface uh, means one thing to them and means something else to me or to, to the other party. So even the simplest concepts like time or like family um, require or have kind of inflected meanings through culture or through the situatedness of the person 
Um, and they can be this kind of endless source of conflict or confusion for communicative processes. So what do we do about it? Well, you might not be getting to that, but that, that is a big question. What do we do about that conflict or? Mm, yeah, that's later. That's okay. later. Yeah. Let's, let's not jump ahead. Let's not jump ahead. So I'm going to pass it to Nagin now. And the mm. other story I thought of after you said that, we have a friend who's late to everything all the time. <gasps> and so we now, when we make plans, we say, is it like our time or Merrim standard time? Mm -hmm. And so we define what time zone we're in, and then we make the plans, and mm. then we know. Mm. But yeah, next we're talking about learning and emotion and how that relates to semiotic ties. So Rob mentioned that the stronger emotion we have within any particular experience, the more clearly we learn from that experience. But what does this actually mean? So as a good communicator or a leader or a persuader or anything, we should tie our intended effect, and our intended effect can be a goal, a perspective, or a decision, to an emotional affect because it creates a value claim that people can then intrinsically relate to and identify themselves through. But before we even do that, we need to understand what makes our audience connect emotionally, and on the opposing side, what turns them off, even through word choice. So we're going to bring up something, if anyone listened to my prior podcast about word choice here with Rob, uh, we're going to bring up the word moist again. So here we go. So here goes. <clears throat> so I have a 12-year-old sister named Hannah, and we were at dinner, and my parents made shish kebab, and they said it was really moist. And she was like, oh my god, ew, and threatened to leave the dinner table because she hates that word for whatever reason. It just really, she really hates it. And we discussed, like, her was like, but why? Like, what about the word moist? She's like, I don't know, it just sounds gross. And she's a gut tie, for whatever reason, to the word being disgusting. In this scenario, though, Hannah had the space to and the courage to explain that she hates that word, so my parents know moving forward to choose a different word. But sometimes in a professional setting or in a speech or in a large group, this may not be the case, and you may not know that you're pushing your audience away with even just a word rather than drawing them closer to create shared meanings and how can you expect them to create shared meanings with you if intrinsically they just hate that word and they're turned off altogether. Mm -hmm. So in when I, I teach a course called Persuasion and we take that course, uh, we read a book by a guy named Clotera Pai. Um, the book's called The Culture Code. Uh, and there's also a PBS documentary about uh, Rapai called The Persuaders, which is a really good documentary. And what Rapai writes about is sort of what Nagin is, is getting at. Um, and he's a psychologist, so he's, he's trained in psychology originally, he didn't become a therapist, he started working for ad agencies instead. And what Rapai was always on the lookout is for is that deep, kind of uh, powerful link, uh, in this case, between uh, someone in the word moist, let's say, or someone in any, any other object, like a car or coffee. Um, oftentimes, we have experiences when we're young, so I, I imagine something happened with um, your sister about the word moist when she was really young. She heard it and she heard it in a context that was bad or uncomfortable or, or and it created this strong impression on her. Uh, so Rapai uses those strong impressions. Uh, so it's true that we, we don't often know what they are. Sometimes we're in an interpersonal setting where someone can elaborate on what those assumptions are. Sometimes we're not. And what Rapai was on the lookout for is the repeated pattern of those associations in a culture. So if there's a whole bunch of people making the same deep kind of powerful association. Uh, and for him, there, there's example, he, the example that sticks in my mind is cheese. So uh, French people think of cheese as this living thing. Uh, and Americans think of cheese, they associate cheese with death. <laughs> uh, so cheese in America is always wrapped in plastic, but in France it's never wrapped in plastic. Or it's processed. Uh, or it's processed, <laughs> yeah. The, 
but there's a kind of cold like deadness to cheese that gets we we Americans uh, when I say we I mean Americans just have this kind of deep association and in France the opposite association or a totally opposite association works so um, whatever that profound kind of cultural moment is can be repeated over and over again over a vast number of people and then you have a whole culture that thinks the word moist is funny or disgusting or gross um, or that thinks the cheese is dead when it's not dead or, or alive when it isn't or, or something like that um, and, and the orig that original point is that the the most powerful assumptions are the ones that we have this kind of strong uh, emotional reaction to a stimuli or to an event or to a thing and that strong emotional reaction creates the kind of deepest set assumptions that will orient our thinking no matter who we are so I, I thinking you were getting at whether these things are knowable by one communicator or not whether you can figure out what those assumptions are and can you i guess is the question well, next, we're going to go how to not do that, and okay. then and then how okay. to do that. So when we went into class today, Nagin and I didn't actually know how to avoid making these detrimental assumptions. We found it quite difficult, but our classmates kind of threw us a lifeline and suggested the following. So shout out to the people who are also coming on the podcast coming up. Um, but when we speak directly to others' assumptions, that can kind of create two outcomes. You can learn that your assumptions align with theirs, which builds a foundation for shared meanings to uh, exist and then continue. Or you're, I, you can identify these assumptions and see how it can bring out conflict between yours and theirs, to which then you can address it and then kind of counter-argue it and then change their decision-making or even their framework. Um, so you're essentially kind of uh, creating, building more logos by demonstrating that you understand and you hear all the multiple frameworks and perspectives and assumptions that are out there, but we're kind of changing that and making them feel heard and then, you know, we're... And even if they, even if you can't change their mind or even if their framework doesn't change, the least you can do, like Megan was saying, is they will feel heard. At least they know that you tried and that in itself builds credibility on its mm -hmm. own. Yeah, I think that, that that last part is really important. So I, I remember being in a meeting once with a colleague who I adore and who I think is very, very smart. And, and at one point she said, oh, this we, maybe we should call something uh, an aesthetic account. And my immediate retort was, no, that's wrong. And mm -hmm. a colleague, of, another colleague of mine was like, oh, <laughs> wait a second, wait a second, wait a second, and stopped and said, well, maybe person A should have a chance to explain what she means by aesthetics. And, I, and then I said, no, that's not necessary. Aesthetics is the science of the study of beauty. And I wanted the meeting to go on. And my colleague was like, well, no, maybe it doesn't mean the science of, this, the, of, of the study of beauty to this other person. And uh, I didn't recognize that what was happening in that, that space was that my colleague had some underlying assumptions about what aesthetics was, and I had some different assumptions. And not even bothering to ask or to inquire about those differences was just really harmful to the deliberative process. And, and my other colleague was trying to in, intervene and say, well, hey, Rob, maybe just ask what this person means by aesthetics before you go and tell them or, or her that, that she's wrong. And that gesture might be enough to indicate, even though we might not ever generate shared meaning, my position is that aesthetics is the science of the study of beauty. That's just <laughs> what it is. The, I don't want to compromise with someone that thinks it's something else. But at the very least, the gesture would be kind of generative of some degree of mutual understanding, even if that mutual understanding is around the, the contours of the disagreement mm -hmm. or the, the difference in the assumption. 
Okay, so now we're going to talk about how exactly we can go about um, doing these things. Doing these things. So we have three ways. Okay. The first is perception checking what you believe is your audience's background and uh, or assumptions and allowing them to correct you if necessary or even just to ask. So another story, story time. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I went to a club with uh, my friend and her boyfriend at the time, <laughs> and he was talking to a girl and got her number and then kind of disappeared off with her to have smokes as he said anyways so she was very extra upset about it and um i know why and that's because her ex-boyfriend every time he went out to a club he would cheat on her and she found out after they broke up so she's really sensitive to that um and he was telling her that she was being extra so we're gonna define extra for rob over here (laughs) (laughs) i think that i know what it means but oh well you know what no, you don't. Okay, <laughs> we're gonna make that assumption. See what okay. we're doing here. Okay, uh, it means over the top, exaggerated, or exaggerated, I should say, or dramatic. Okay. Um, and so they fought all the way home. They fought until four in the morning, and then they woke up. I mean, my entire house, my all my roommates were about to kill me, and they woke up again at eight thirty to keep fighting. Um, but if all he did was say like, "Hey, I feel like you're extra sensitive to this. Is there any particular reason why?" Then she might have felt the space to be like, "Yeah, actually." My ex-boyfriend did this, and I just, it's a trigger for me. But they didn't do that, and they just kept my house up all night, and everyone hated me in the morning. So another thing we should do is ask questions to further define common terms or phrases mentioned by others to get at their background experience with that word. So, as Rob just said before, I think I do know what extra means, and I kind of cut him off and told him, no, he didn't. (laughs) That's not something you should do. That's an example of what you should not do. Um, So rather than jumping in and assuming they don't know, you should ask them first, give them a chance to define it, which can give you the opportunity for shared meaning making or trying to reestablish for each other what that means in the context of your conversation or uh, what you're talking about. I think that... Central question there to be really, really specific. The question that works most effectively is when you ask, what does X mean to you? Whatever the X is. So if it's extra, if it's family, if it's um, uh, if it's what an A means or in, in terms of grading, whatever it is, uh, or I find myself also saying, can you tell me more about what X means to you? Because oftentimes a person will say, well, I did this with my family. And instead of just saying, well, what does family mean to you? I I might say, can you tell me more about what that that was that you did? Uh, I'm asking for that person to unpack some of the details behind the assumptions that are being made. Um, So I find at least that is the simplest and most direct question that one can ask. So what does the X mean to you? Or can you tell me more about what X looks like in in your view? I'm actually, so I'm working in sales right now as my co-op. Um, and in sales, they tell us to do that exact same thing. On the phone, when a lead or even a current customer or a prospect tells you something, don't assume you know what they mean. Um, the phrase they keep telling us is just shut up and ask. Mm-hmm. Just, like, it's not about you. It's about the other person. And let them define what their problem means to them before you can come in with what you think is the proper solution. Um, and then our last uh, performance indicator of this is define your definition of a specific term or phrase to avoid the misunderstanding. So don't even ask them, don't perceive but you just even define it on your own. Yeah, so going back to Nikki and I's uh, kind of conflict last night, what we should have done is just been direct for each other. We should have defined what the time was. We probably also should have defined if one of us were late to that time, what would happen. <laughs> um, that would have avoided some conflict, but like I said, our friendship made it out alive. We did some conflict resolution. This we're morning. communication students. We're 
great. Everything's good. Well, I, I think that, <clears throat> I, well, interestingly, I think that third thing is actually harder than the second. So yeah. it can be easier to ask someone else. So, so what is family? What does time mean to you? What, what, what does 10 o'clock mean in your world? Mm-hmm. Um, and it can be much harder to stop and actually do the work of unpacking your own assumptions or articulating your own assumptions. Uh, because we don't often, that assumptions are assumptions because they operate at the background of our thinking in a kind of natural, non-unconscious kind of way. So when we say 10-ish, we don't stop to think what that means for us. We just kind of naturally assume what it means for us and let that do its work. So uh, this, I think, would be the highest order of, of skill in terms of complexity because it's asking for a degree of self-reflection that most people just don't have. They, they just naturally operate communicatively by allowing their assumptions to remain in the background and not bringing them to, not bringing them to the foreground. Mm-hmm. And I would say also with that is sometimes, like what you were just saying, defining is the hardest. That comes after you've experienced a conflict because you didn't define it. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes that's like the next step when the first two weren't done and didn't work. And so it's when you learn along the process. Yeah, so next time we'll define what our times mean for one another? Well, m- most people just are never asked to do that. And then some people um, some people don't even have, an, this is going to sound horrible, but some people don't have enough experience in the world mm-hmm. to even be aware of the fact that different people have many different assumptions about common terms like family or like time. Uh, they have such a narrow range of experiences, and in their world, everybody does operate by the same set of assumptions. Uh, so the, I'm trying to, like the, I was in Jamaica once and island time is real. <laughs> it's, it's so it's real. Very it's real. Amazing. Yeah. And a lot, but a lot of people that live there that may never have been off the island may never have been to New York city or to Japan. Mm-hmm. Or to so, so, I mean, there's no island time in Japan. Three o'clock is three o'clock, <laughs> but it's not clear that it would even register to someone who's lived their whole lives in Jamaica along island time. That time could be construed in any other manner. Mm-hmm. Um, so it requires this kind of balance of self-reflexive uh, awareness with uh, a rich enough life experience to start to identify when moments of conflict are the results of um, assumptions being made by, by different parties. Mm. So what else? Is, is, are we ready for a review? That's yeah, we're ready for a review. Okay. Uh, so essentially what the point we want to make is that um, you want to avoid obviously making audience and background assumptions Um, when we do that uh, we're not keeping our audience in mind and potentially not having the intended effect uh, that is wanting to be made and therefore what you're talking about or what you're trying to get across your framework is then kind of corrupted in a sense and it doesn't work and that learning an emotion is really really important you have to pay attention to the emotion of your audience and that emotion can come from moments before your actual communicative moment. It can come from their cultural biases, personal experiences, like their gender, their social social class. And so you have to recognize that when you go into any situation is that your situation doesn't start from the beginning, it starts from before then. Mm-hmm. And I, I think of the most important thing is that we need to recognize the source of a lot of conflict is a misunderstanding about the assumptions being made around the terms of the conflict itself. Mm-hmm. I think most people don't set out with the intention or desire to be in conflict with other other people but these conflicts arise because we too easily take for granted the assumptions that we make about our positions are the same as the the assumptions that the other person is making or the same kind of background information 
that the other person has. Uh, so it's useful, I think, for listeners to identify some recent conflicts that they've had and ask themselves, well, is the source of this conflict just a, a misunderstanding between the assumptions both parties to the conflict were using for around those, those key terms or key ideas, or was it there was a genuine disagreement? I think more often than not, it's around assumptions rather than genuine disagreement mm -hmm. over where there's a shared sense of, of where the disagreement lies. So uh, I guess that's it for episode 40. Thanks to Megan and Nagin. And we'll, I'll be back in a week or so with another episode um, where we'll be talking about some of these bigger ideas as well. Thanks, everyone, for listening.